0: Section Eight of the Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Butros. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Four, by Rossiter Johnson, Charles F. Horn, and John Rudd. Section Eight. Attila Invades Western Europe Battle of Chalon, A.D. 451 Edward Gibbon The facility with which Attila had penetrated into the heart of Gaul may be ascribed to his insidious policy as well as to the terror of his arms. His public declarations were skillfully mitigated by his private assurances. He alternately soothed and threatened the Romans and the Goths, and the courts of Ravenna and Toulouse, mutually suspicious of each other's intentions, beheld with supine indifference the approach of their common enemy. etius was the sole guardian of the public safety, but his wisest measures were embarrassed by a faction which, since the death of Placidia, infested the imperial palace. The youth of Italy trembled at the sound of the trumpet and the barbarians who from fear or affection were inclined to the cause of attila awaited with doubtful and venal faith the event of the war the patrician passed the alps at the head of some troops whose strength and number scarcely deserved the name of an army But on his arrival at Ares, or Lyon, he was confounded by the intelligence that the Visigoths, refusing to embrace the defense of Gaul, had determined to expect within their own territories the formidable invader whom they professed to despise. The senator Avitus, who, after the honorable exercise of the praetorian prefecture, had retired to his estate in Auvergne, was persuaded to accept the important embassy, which he executed with ability and success. He represented to Theodoric that an ambitious conqueror who aspired to the dominion of the earth could be resisted only by the firm and unanimous alliance of the powers whom he labored to oppress the lively eloquence of Avitus inflamed the Gothic warriors by the description of the injuries which their ancestors had suffered from the Huns, whose implacable fury still pursued them from the Danube to the foot of the Pyrenees. He strenuously urged that it was the duty of every Christian to save from sacrilegious violation the churches of God and the relics of the saints that it was the interest of every barbarian who had acquired a settlement in gaul to defend the fields and vineyards which were cultivated for his use against the desolation of the scythian shepherds theodoric yielded to the evidence of truth adopted the measure at once the most prudent and the most honorable and declared that as the faithful ally of Etius and the romans he was ready to expose his life and kingdom for the common safety of gaul the visigoths who at that time were in the mature vigor of their fame and power obeyed with alacrity the signal of war prepared their arms and horses and assembled under the standard of their aged king who was resolved with his two eldest sons taurismond and theodoric to command in person his numerous and valiant people the example of the goths determined several tribes or nations that seemed to fluctuate between the huns and the romans the indefatigable diligence of the patrician gradually collected the troops of gaul and germany who had formerly acknowledged themselves the subjects or soldiers of the republic but who now claimed the rewards of voluntary service and the rank of independent allies the Laeti, the armoricans the Brions, the saxons the burgundians the sarmatians or alani the ripurians and the franks who followed merovius as their lawful prince such was the various army which under the conduct of Etius and theodoric advanced by rapid marches to relieve orleans and to give battle to the innumerable host of attila on their approach the king of the huns immediately raised the siege and sounded a retreat to recall the foremost of his troops from the pillage of a city which they had already entered the valour of attila was always guided by his prudence and as he foresaw the fatal consequences of a defeat in the heart of gaul he repassed the seine and expected the enemy in the plains of chalon whose smooth and level surface was adapted to the operations of his scythian cavalry but in this tumultuary retreat the vanguard of the romans and their allies continually pressed and sometimes engaged the troops whom attila had posted in the rear the hostile columns in the darkness of the night and the perplexity of the roads might encounter each other without design and the bloody conflict of the franks and jepidae in which fifteen thousand barbarians were slain was a prelude to a more general and decisive action the catalonian fields spread themselves round chalon and extend according to the vague measurement of Jornandes, to the length of one hundred and fifty and the breadth of one hundred miles over the whole province which is entitled to the appellation of a champagne country this spacious plain was distinguished, however, by some inequalities of ground, and the importance of a height which commanded the camp of Attila was understood and disputed by the two generals. The young and valiant Torsmund first occupied the summit, the Goths rushed with irresistible weight on the Huns, who labored to ascend from the opposite side and the possession of this advantageous post inspired both the troops and their leaders with a fair assurance of victory the anxiety of attila prompted him to consult his priests and haruspices. it was reported that after scrutinizing the entrails of victims and scraping their bones they revealed in mysterious language his own defeat with the death of his principal adversary and that the barbarian, by accepting the equivalent, expressed his involuntary esteem for the superior merit of Etius. But the unusual despondency which seemed to prevail among the Huns engaged Attila to use the expedient, so familiar to the generals of antiquity, of animating his troops by a military oration and his language was that of a king who had often fought and conquered at their head. He pressed them to consider their past glory, their actual danger, and their future hopes. The same fortune which opened the deserts and morasses of Scythia to their unarmed valor, which had laid so many warlike nations prostrate at their feet, had reserved the joys of this memorable field for the consummation of their victories the cautious steps of their enemies their strict alliance and their advantageous posts he artfully represented as the effects not of prudence but of fear the visigoths alone were the strength and nerves of the opposite army and the huns might securely trample on the degenerate romans whose close and compact order betrayed their apprehensions and who were equally incapable of supporting the dangers or the fatigues of a day of battle the doctrine of predestination so favorable to martial virtue was carefully inculcated by the king of the huns who assured his subjects that the warriors protected by heaven were safe and invulnerable amid the darts of the enemy but that the unerring fates would strike their victims in the bosom of inglorious peace i myself continued attila will throw the first javelin and the wretch who refuses to imitate the example of his sovereign is devoted to inevitable death The spirit of the barbarians was rekindled by the presence, the voice, and the example of their intrepid leader, and Attila, yielding to their impatience, immediately formed his order of battle. At the head of his brave and faithful Huns he occupied in person the center of the line. The nations subject to his empire, the Rugians, the Heruli, the Thuringians, the Franks, the Burgundians, were extended, on either hand, over the ample space of the Catalonian fields. The right wing was commanded by Ardaric, king of the Gepidae, and the three valiant brothers who reigned over the Ostrogoths were posted on the left to oppose the kindred tribes of the Visigoths. The disposition of the allies was regulated by a different principle. Sangiban, the faithless king of the Alani, was placed in the center where his motions might be strictly watched and his treachery might be instantly punished. Etius assumed the command of the left and Theodoric of the right wing, while Torismund still continued to occupy the heights which appear to have stretched on the flank and perhaps the rear of the Scythian army. The nations from the Volga to the Atlantic were assembled on the plain of Chalon, but many of these nations had been divided by faction, or conquest, or emigration, and the appearance of similar arms and ensigns, which threatened each other, presented the image of a civil war. The discipline and tactics of the Greeks and Romans form an interesting part of their national manners the attentive study of the military operations of Xenophon, or Caesar, or Frederick, when they are described by the same genius which conceived and executed them, may tend to improve, if such improvement can be wished, the art of destroying the human species. But the battle of Chalon can only excite our curiosity by the magnitude of the object since it was decided by the blind impetuosity of barbarians, and has been related by partial writers, whose civil or ecclesiastical profession secluded them from the knowledge of military affairs. Cassiodorus, however, had familiarly conversed with many Gothic warriors who served in that memorable engagement, a conflict, as they informed him. Fierce, various, obstinate and bloody such as could not be paralleled either in the present or in past ages the number of the slain amounted to one hundred and sixty-two thousand or according to another account three hundred thousand persons and these incredible exaggerations suppose a real and effective loss sufficient to justify the historian's remark that whole generations may be swept away by the madness of kings in the space of a single hour after the mutual and repeated discharge of missile weapons in which the archers of scythia might signalize their superior dexterity the cavalry and infantry of the two armies were furiously mingled in closer combat the huns who fought under the eyes of their king pierced through the feeble and doubtful centre of the allies separated their wings from each other and wheeling with a rapid effort to the left directed their whole force against the visigoths As Theodoric rode along the ranks to animate his troops, he received a mortal stroke from the javelin of Andages, a noble Ostrogoth, and immediately fell from his horse. The wounded king was oppressed in the general disorder, and trampled under the feet of his own cavalry, and this important death served to explain the ambiguous prophecy of the haruspices attila already exulted in the confidence of victory when the valiant taurismund descended from the hills and verified the remainder of the prediction the visigoths who had been thrown into confusion by the flight or defection of the alani gradually restored their order of battle and the huns were undoubtedly vanquished since attila was compelled to retreat He had exposed his person with the rashness of a private soldier, but the intrepid troops of the center had pushed forward beyond the rest of the line. Their attack was faintly supported. Their flanks were unguarded, and the conquerors of Scythia and Germany were saved by the approach of the night from a total defeat. They retired within the circle of wagons that fortified their camp, and the dismounted squadrons prepared themselves for a defence to which neither their arms nor their temper was adapted the event was doubtful but attila had secured a last and honourable resource The saddles and rich furniture of the cavalry were collected, by his order, into a funeral pile, and the magnanimous barbarian had resolved, if his entrenchments should be forced, to rush headlong into the flames, and to deprive his enemies of the glory which they might have acquired by the death or captivity of Attila. But his enemies had passed the night in equal disorder and anxiety. The inconsiderate courage of Torismond was tempted to urge the pursuit, till he unexpectedly found himself with a few followers in the midst of the Scythian wagons. In the confusion of a nocturnal combat he was thrown from his horse, and the Gothic prince must have perished like his father, if his youthful strength and the intrepid zeal of his companions had not rescued him from this dangerous situation in the same manner but on the left of the line etius himself separated from his allies ignorant of their victory and anxious for their fate encountered and escaped the hostile troops that were scattered over the plains of shallon and at length reached the camp of the goths which he could only fortify with a slight rampart of shields till the dawn of day the imperial general was soon satisfied of the defeat of attila who still remained inactive within his entrenchments and when he contemplated the bloody scene he observed with secret satisfaction that the loss had principally fallen on the barbarians the body of theodoric pierced with honourable wounds was discovered under a heap of the slain his subjects bewailed the death of their king and father but their tears were mingled with songs and acclamations, and his funeral rites were performed in the face of a vanquished enemy. The Goths, clashing their arms, elevated on a buckler his eldest son, Torismund, to whom they justly ascribed the glory of their success, and the new king accepted the obligation of revenge as a sacred portion of his paternal inheritance yet the goths themselves were astonished by the fierce and undaunted aspect of their formidable antagonist and their historian has compared attila to a lion encompassed in his den and threatening his hunters with redoubled fury The kings and nations, who might have deserted his standard in the hour of distress, were made sensible that the displeasure of their monarch was the most imminent and inevitable danger. All his instruments of martial music incessantly sounded a loud and animating strain of defiance and the foremost troops who advanced to the assault were checked or destroyed by showers of arrows from every side of the entrenchments. It was determined, in a general council of war, to besiege the king of the Huns in his camp, to intercept his provisions, and to reduce him to the alternative of a disgraceful treaty, or an unequal combat but the impatience of the barbarians soon disdained these cautious and dilatory measures and the mature policy of Etius was apprehensive that after the extirpation of the huns the republic would be oppressed by the pride and power of the gothic nation the patrician exerted the superior ascendance of authority and reason to calm the passions which the son of theodoric considered as a duty represented with seeming affection and real truth the dangers of absence and delay and persuaded Torismond to disappoint by his speedy return the ambitious designs of his brothers who might occupy the throne and treasures of toulouse after the departure of the goths and the separation of the allied army attila was surprised at the vast silence that reigned over the plains of chalon the suspicion of some hostile stratagem detained him several days within the circle of his wagons, and his retreat beyond the Rhine confessed the last victory which was achieved in the name of the Western Empire. Morovius and his Franks, observing a prudent distance, and magnifying the opinion of their strength by the numerous fires which they kindled every night, continued to follow the rear of the huns till they reached the confines of thuringia the thuringians served in the army of attila they traversed both in their march and in their return the territories of the franks and it was perhaps in this war that they exercised the cruelties which about fourscore years afterward were revenged by the son of clovis They massacred their hostages as well as their captives. Two hundred young maidens were tortured with exquisite and unrelenting rage. Their bodies were torn asunder by wild horses, or their bones were crushed under the weight of rolling wagons. And their unburied limbs were abandoned on the public roads as a prey to dogs and vultures." Such were those savage ancestors whose imaginary virtues have sometimes excited the praise and envy of civilized ages. End of section eight.